Welcome to the ACOFP Student Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hello, welcome to the ACOFP Student Podcast. I'm Katie Hawks, and I'm the Vice President of the National Student Executive Board. Today at ACFP, we're going to be talking with Dr. Chris Yance. For those of you who haven't met Dr. Yance, he's a professor of family medicine at LMUDCOM and the director of clinical distance learning. He also wrote an OMT pocket manual while he was still in medical school. Today, we're going to discuss why he chose family medicine and how he implements OMT in practice. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Yance. Thanks for having me. All right. So to start off for our listeners, we want to just know why you chose family medicine in the first place. Yeah, that's a long, long drawn out process, of course, like it is probably for most people. But it really came down at the end. You know, I looked at a few things. You know, first I was family when I was in medical school. Like we changed it, you know, multiple times. And then I was really interested in peds, almost went the peds route. And then I went to uh, on rotations and, and I drank the Kool Aid. And I thought to be a real doctor, you had to do med peds. <laughs> and uh, then I found out later on, you know, going through the match and and uh, and. and and actually not matching in med piece, which is one of the most, one of the best blessings I could have ever experienced. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like at the first, it felt like the sky was falling, right? Right. And so then I scrambled into family medicine at UT Knoxville, which was an hour from my hometown. And uh, it was the best thing that ever happened. So I, I came there um, uh, as a kind of a, uh, on a pathway, which I was family medicine for a long time in, in what I thought. And then I kind of went away from it, but actually was fortunate to get dropped back in it. So that's kind of how I got into family medicine. Um, so I, was, I took a little detour, but I got. Yeah, you got here at the end. Yeah, just <laughs> right. not, to, not to break up MedPeds, but just for those students who don't know what differentiates family medicine from MedPeds, because they're very similar. Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to go into great detail, but with MedPeds, obviously, you basically spend two years doing medicine, two years doing peds, and you can take your boards uh, for for both, and you mm-hmm. can kind of work as a you know, you get your board certified in pediatrics or certification in medicine. But what I saw, what I saw, and what I found uh, since then was generally people don't do both; they generally mm-hmm. do one or the other. They generally gravitate toward medicine or toward pediatrics. And uh, so I think family medicine, family medicine, most physicians generally in, in their training take care of everybody. And so it's, it's a rarity in med-peds that, that they do both, but it's pretty common. I mean, there's exceptions to the rule, but pretty common in family medicine to take care of all ages, and that was my goal. And so that's why I say I was lucky to get back to that, not not bashing med-peds, because mm-hmm. uh, I was all about it, you know, when I was applying. But but for what I wanted, um, less of the ICU, less of the intensive, which I enjoy, but more of primary care. And family medicine is primary care. There's no other specialty that defines primary care like family medicine. For sure. Thanks so much. Um, so in light with family medicine, what's your favorite part of being an ACOFP, which is the osteopathic family medicine organization? Sure. Well, I got there kind of, it was kind of, you know, my previous chair of family medicine, it was kind of mentored me, Dr. Ratlin's funny, today was his birthday, he's passed away, but I saw that today, missing him, so really pushed me into it, where I trained UT Knoxville as an allopathic institution, um, and so he made me, he encouraged me, that's why we got dual boarded and, and uh, through AOBFP and, a, and ABFM, and so became more involved in ACFP, then I started becoming more active, and I, I think one of my favorite things is, is really to, to be on the uh, OCR, which is OSPAC Clinical Research Committee, where we judge posters and uh, presentations and we deal with uh, kind of preparing for that, helping, helping student residents, uh, students 
meet their uh, scholarly activity related to their training. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's probably one of the things I enjoy the most about ACFP. Awesome. How'd you get involved with that? Was that just something you applied for to be on a committee or how does that work? Yes. Yes. I, I asked to be on that committee and they accepted me. And so I've been on that committee for quite a few years now. I'd say five, six years or more I've been on that committee. So be able to bounce around different committees, but I really enjoy that one. So I'm, I'm kind of hung with that one. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, so in family medicine, what type of practice or academic setting do you currently work in? Right now, I'm not seeing patients, but at, you know, just wasn't too long ago, I, I saw did primary care. Of course, I was part-time mostly, you know, uh, the, the, the biggest hat I wore was academics and teaching. Uh, and I did some, um, when I was first hired by the university, I became the medical director uh, for our clinic system. And so, which I'll allude to probably later on in the interview, but uh, I would say, you know, my, what I did most was primary care. and But I still kind of function a little bit like a specialist in that I did OMM um, probably 30, 40% of the time. Um, and sometimes as, as a sense of they had primary care elsewhere and would come to just to me for OMM. So, mm-hmm. and I was happy to do that. I did OMT on my, uh, on my personal patients that I took care of as far as primary care, but on other people's uh, uh, primary care patients as, as needed. And so that's kind of my practice. Um, and probably when I go back really soon, um, how it will operate again, uh, uh Awesome. Um, As a previous department head in family medicine, how do you recommend students get involved in that if that's something they're interested in in the future? Involved in family medicine? In in leadership, so in the academic aspect. So not just being in clinic, but working associated with the university. Well, it's it's important. I think, you know, there's different stages. You know, I'm kind of unique that I went straight into academics right out of residency. Uh, The dean here, when he was here, I always wanted to come home, but I didn't realize that that my home would eventually have a medical school. So it was kind of unique. And then Mm -hmm. when I wanted to come back and practice, he kind of really wooed me. Dr. Stowers did to come work for him. And he told me, you know, he said, I know you want to be a primary care physician, but I want want to make 150 of you every year. So he wanted me to come teach. And so he kind of wooed me away. So it's unusual that many people my age go into academics so early. Gotcha. Um, But it is a possibility. Um, I love, I came down in my, in my, years of, of, of training when I was picking my career, you know, picking college, I, I really come down to education for medicine. I was really torn. I really like to teach. And so, hey, I'm blessed. I get to do yeah. both. I get to practice medicine. I get to teach too. So I love it. But so I think if you really like to teach, uh, you may jump into academics earlier. Um, and some of you like yourself, who was a fellow, like to teach and you have been mm-hmm. exposed to that, have that skill set. Not everybody has a skill set to, to teach, sure. to deal with it. But uh, I think in our profession, we all we all should teach. That's just part of who we are. We teach our patients, and we should always be involved with students and uh, learners, whether it be resident level or the or the uh, pre-graduate, pre-graduate uh, uh, level with the medical students. And we should be teaching always because mm-hmm. it always makes us better. And and we should do it the right way. For sure. Yeah. Kind of in line with that, in terms of residency, do you think there's a benefit of going to an academic institution that's more associated with like UT versus a community-based hospital in a more rural oh, area? That's a real good question. You know, I really think, you know, in the years of me being involved, I think it really depends on the learner. It depends okay. on the person. Uh, some people thrive more in a big academic medical center, and some people would really thrive in a rural outpatient, uh, a rural uh, area, whether it be inpatient, outpatient, working. Um, I think it really depends on the person. And okay. I think you should have exposures to both. And that's what I love about our school is that we have rotations where you're exposed to both. But um, uh, at least see rural for sure. But I think um, uh, it, 
you know, I, I did train there. I mean, I, my rotations were in rural uh, Pikeville, Kentucky. I mean, okay. so I saw it. And then I trained at UT, you know, and it was definitely like an institute large. You know, we had we had rounds with eight, nine, ten people rounding us in the hospital. And, and so it was kind of new to me a little bit. I did do a, a rotation or two when I was a student. But it became a way of life for me in my training. But, you know, that's not how medicine is really practiced in the world. Academic right. institutions are very good to learn, but if you want to learn how medicine's practiced, it's really you learn how to do that in rural America. It's yeah, for sure. It's is just as good, if not better. Um, but I think either way, you're, you're a winner either way. It, all that comes down to I want to go far into that is what you put into it. No right. I, I agree with that for sure. And I think it's just where you get the best feel that you're going to be able to learn from them and then be able to teach the, the students that are rotating there. So I agree I with that so. 100%. <laughs> We, we generally gravitate what we like, so I think mm-hmm. that's what, when they when they dabble in, they'll find out where where their draw is. So. For sure. Um, so you kind of talked about how in your practice you did up to thirty percent or forty percent OMM patients. What originally piqued your interest in osteopathic manipulation? Well, you know, it's funny. It's a good question. You know, I interview students. You know, we interview almost every week. You know, every Friday we interview, and I've sit with lots of people who interview students, and they'll say this student has no interest in OMM, so I don't know if we should let them in. And I'm like, you know. I tell him, I said, you know, I, I really thought it was silly when I when I was applying. I really wasn't into it. But boy, it just made so much sense for me when I started learning. You know, I'm very visual. I'm very, um, I see things, you know, kind of as a builder would see or as an artist. And so the body, I saw the body differently than other people, I think. And so only them just clicked. It didn't take long. Now, I had no interest going into medical school, but before long, I became an advocate for it. So I think everybody's different. I think your experience early on, too, plays into that. If you get turned off early, you may be somebody who'd be very good, but all of a sudden just kind of got turned off to it. So right. I'm cautious about how we expose people to OMM early on but as, they, yeah. as they're developing their opinions about it, you know? For sure. We all come in saying, you know, we want the mind, body, spirit, but we don't really understand exactly what goes into it. And I think, you know, taking a little bits at a time um, and exposing students is very helpful. And you did construction or something similar, right? I remember you telling us that you had did something in mechanics. And is that kind of what you were alluding to? I joke a little bit. I'm a hillbilly. We do everything, right? (laughs) So growing up, I did a little bit of everything. But uh, yeah, I worked in a factory for about three years before I went to medical school. So that that probably taught me a lot about life before I got involved. In, in school and, and so yeah and kind of looking at the different pieces that connect together in the body yeah. i'm sure kind of always been resonated. Artist, always been somebody who builds and, and creates and so it's it's it, it kind of it, everybody's mind's different and i think mm-hmm. any topic you approach it you don't have to be like me to be great OMT. you don't have mm-hmm. to do it with you know to be just like the way i see things or see things the way i see things to do good and don't do good on him you know for sure. Um, so in line with that, what are the what is the most rewarding part of using OMM for you on patients and then even on students and teaching them? Well, to me, it's just so practical. You know, I think sometimes people spin it as like it's something mystical and magical. And it's really not. It's, I mean, there's some things we don't understand about it. You know, it still is kind of impressive. Um, and I, there's a lot about the body is that way. You know, and there's, there's some interesting things, you know, with with fascial planes and all of a sudden you see things happen you're like wow that's it's crazy even with tensegrity you see it don't really understand totally the, the fundamental details but you see the results of it mm-hmm. you treat people uh, you treat one area this body part of the body changes you know you can't deny it but you're not really sure exactly you know how that works structurally but it's very it's fundamental and, it, and it's, it's it's um and i think that's the rewarding part is is teaching somebody that to, to kind of avoid kind of stigmas and kind of see things and kind of just mm-hmm. teach them. It's very, it's, it's very um, 
basic and fundamental to, to, mm-hmm. uh, to what, who we are and what we are. And I, the best part about patient care is, you know, treating patients who, who can't really get relief in your play. We, we treat a lot of pain, right? That's what the world mm-hmm. is going on mostly. It still treats disease. And I love teaching that to students. And so, but, you know, pain is, what's, is, is what people draws people to only take. They actually come mm-hmm. to morning visits. And so that's only what you end up doing more of is treating people's pain. Um, and dysfunction, and so it's nice to treat people who, who can't get relief through other means and want and, and want it. They've been everywhere, and and give them sometimes hope because they feel like I'm going to have this forever and I don't know get better. And when you treat them, even if it doesn't resolve, they say, "Hey, this improved." So there is hope, you know. Exactly. Um, it may take more treatments, but they when you show them and prove to them, "Hey, this can change," you know where you're at, change your pain level and your functionality. That's the big thing: functional quality of life. It's nice yeah. to improve people's quality of life. For sure. And along that note, I think it's important for our students to know, obviously, we're not chasing pain. We're treating the dysfunction we find because yeah. that's kind of what we, as first years and as younger medical students, we gravitate, oh, you hurt at your T3. We're going to treat T3. Yeah, but yeah. so just you can treat the painful <laughs> area without directly being on the painful area and well, it'll be more comfortable. <laughs> our foundation was all about that. You know, we, yeah. were, we were, it was driven into us. Dr. Styles was like, you know, Evaluate and treat what you find. Don't chase the pain. Mm-hmm. We were always taught one way to fail OMT is to chase the pain. It's on so many of our slides. And so yeah, every <laughs> everyone. Yeah. Um, so, what's your favorite OMM technique or modality? I know, obviously, for different patients, use different modalities based on what is necessary. But is there a certain modality that you just like to use? Yeah, everybody has their favorites. I don't care what they say. Right. <laughs> everybody has their favorites, and, and a lot of times it's about who taught us. Uh, we have lots of teachers. We, try, we then we kind of gravitate toward the technique that we just like, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm definitely an Ed Styles uh, prodigy. So or or or, just, or uh, in that group, and so uh, he left. You know, your mentors obviously leave impressions on me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a functional guy. So most of what I do is functional muscle energy. Um, I like the speed. I like that it's easy to position and treat and uh, mm-hmm. and. and you know, functional may be a little longer, but you get so much more out of it, you may have to treat them less if you do a good functional technique. And so in a busy primary care office, you know, you'd think high velocity is great. And I do some high velocity and pelvis, but that's not my go-to. Right. I can do it anywhere. I mean, I just don't like it sometimes. I think the thing about, you know, high velocity that, that, hit, that kind of maybe I don't do as much is when I was in training, um, people didn't know it scared people. Mm-hmm. So I kind of began to gravitate away from it so I could actually pitch it and promote OMT without actually scaring people, a lot of soft, gentle stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that got my hand in the door to treat people and to educate people who weren't familiar with OMT uh, by, by always declaring out these gentle techniques, gentle and yes. soft and not, not alarming or scary. And that, that's how I was an advocate for our profession and for OMT. Yeah. Awesome. For those of for those students who don't know what functional is, since it's not something that's heavily tested on our boards, can you kind of give a brief summary, like your 30-second elevator pitch? Yeah, sure, yeah. Functional, it, technically, if you were looking in the list of techniques, I think the profession calls it functional release techniques, or FRT. And so there's a conglomerate of techniques, and they're all out of them are similar, similar. And it's very similar to the steel technique, which people may have heard of. Um, it really is the indirect technique. And so... It's a little bit different in that you, you tap into some intrinsic things and some, some kind of fascial planes. Mm-hmm. But if you go indirect and you load it or you put traction, basically put energy into the system of some sort and allow the body to kind of unwind, allow that tension system to unwind. It's kind of 
you kind of have to develop a little knack for to do it, kind of feel for it. But once you feel it one time, you're generally, you can do it. You know? Yeah. And, I'm and one of those people it. that doesn't have a knack. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you, once you get hooked and I, I have to warn people, don't get, don't do it. You know, it's, it's got, it'll bite you. You'll get hooked on it. And uh-huh. uh, there are certain techniques that are just fun to do. And I think functional FRT is one of those. And, and uh, not all the time do students get bit, but occasionally they do. Yeah. I get the bug for sure. Yeah. Um, so you kind of talked about, opening the door with your patients, you know, they're not as open usually to HVLA or the pop lock it, drop it techniques, as I like to call them. Yep. Um, how do you explain OMM to your patients? You talked about using gentler techniques, but what's your kind of description you use? Yeah, and it really depends on the patient. And I think that's what we do as providers is kind of try to read the patient and kind of sense what they want. Maybe if we know them real well, we know their background. If they're an engineering or math or science background, we would, I would explain it differently than if they were somebody who didn't have any exposure to that. Right. And so I love to give my uh, robot analogy to those that are mechanical and, and, and basically talk about a computer program and how it runs and getting back to home and, and basically how the body is a program. You know, and when you, you have a fault out, the body kind of shuts down, locks down, and that ultimately is somatic dysfunction. And then how what we do is, is to normalize that, take off those restrictions and get that body part and that segment in the brain back on the same page. But there's different ways to explain it. The most easiest way to explain it is basically it's loss of function. We were It was driven in our heads. It's not out of place. It's not dislocated. It's not wrong. It's in the normal range. It's just restricted. I see. And, and a lot of times we just got to evaluate for those restrictions, and they would feel that. They would feel me evaluating them and finding those hard, tender spots. Oh, there's a restriction. They would see me treating them and reevaluating those being gone. So when you explain it that way and you treat and they feel it, they, they get it. It's not real hard. So I would tell them it's not magic. We're going to try to normalize, find anything that's restricted, not moving like it should, and get those hindrances out and so that your body functions like normal, and that will basically increase your range of motion, your function, and lower your pain, which is ultimately the definition that we use for OMT, but in a way mm-hmm. that I think people can understand. Um, uh, we I did a lot of... When I was a third and fourth year, I probably did more OMT on my rotations than probably anybody. <laughs> and a lot of that comes down to, you know, how you approach the rotation, how you approach a preset. Uh, was that something you were going to ask? Me yeah, about? well, something that that is a good point. Uh, not exactly explicitly what I was going to ask, but I think that's a good point. How did you approach your preceptors with that? Because I personally have not done as much OMT as I would like, and I've kind of brought it up to them where I thought would be helpful, but I could tell they were hesitant to it. And um, sometimes you almost just have to, you obviously have to ask permission, but sometimes just kind of show them and show the results. But how did you get your preceptors on board with that. Yeah, that's a good, it's, it's a really good point. And I try to teach as much as possible because if you don't know how to do it, you're never going to do it. Uh, I probably had more success with my MD or allopathic preceptors and my DO. It sounds great. Really? Oh, man. <laughs> it's more OMT in, my, in those rotations. And really, I would just wait for the opportunity to explain it to teach them uh, about what OMT was. And I did definitely a more mechanical more functional, more more described of restrictions and how it worked, and and in the very basics, like even in the spine, the intertransverse side had a restricted nerve spasm, and by normalizing, you increase range of motion. So simple stuff like that that they've not been taught, they can easily understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they understand it's not just a bunch of crazy, you know. Nothing. Right. It's very mechanical, and you talk about how nerve fibers flow and how it, you know spasms and restrictions, and you can begin to talk about those things. Then they begin to get it. But the most important thing I want every student to understand is you have to have a leg to stand on. Okay. And so what I would never mention OMT on day one of rotation. <laughs> 
So you show up early, you work your tail off, you read, you prove yourself worthy of a good discussion. Fair enough? Yeah, I agree. And when you've, when you've created that perception about you being competent and somebody who can discuss cases and, and has an understanding, then when the time comes right and the case comes in, you think you can help somebody. Where it's like a slam dunk, you know, you know you've treated somebody before, then you pitch it. You describe what you want to do and how you want to do it and what result you expect. And they give you a shot and then you, you perform, and all of a sudden now you're in. Yeah, that's awesome because that's in. a good point. <laughs> I had a people. Right. I had a pediatrics preceptor who I really loved, but he was my first, you know, rotation. And, you know, finally at the end, he allowed me to explain OMT, but by the time I was able to explain it, it was kind of too late to treat. So I think, you know, got to gotta weigh your, your options and try to get it, not, you know, right at the first day, but kind of get it in the first couple of weeks since it's only a month. Yes. Sometimes that comes into play. Now, when you have two months, you're in luck, right? But yeah. Months, it is harder. Now, when I was a third and fourth year, especially when I became a fourth year, I had people who would call me. And they were no longer my preceptor, but they would call me to come treat their patients. Um, the CT surgeon, um, his PA would call me all the time. I taught about rib dysfunctions. And so mm-hmm. he understood, he didn't understand all of it, he definitely understood rib dysfunctions. He basically would do a, thor- a thoracotomy, a thoracotomy, any kind of procedure. He would basically open the ribs up and take mm-hmm. a camera in there. And then he would basically tie the ribs off, O ties. And I would begin to explain to him, this is why they hurt for four or five, six months, because you're inducing dysfunction. And so I would treat a few people, you know, and then he began to see, he began to understand that. And I would be actually used that conceptually in his current care, which he had nothing to do with OMT, but understood the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Maybe even, maybe sew the fascial layers up and don't just sew off the ribs. You yeah, know? that and, makes sense. And so, um, go ahead. Um, so when you treated those patients or just kind of um, helped them, was that soon after their procedures or was that as they followed up and outpatient? Because to me, those are very intense procedures. I'm just curious from my own knowledge. Yeah, yeah. well, they're not going to do a lot of difference when they have an old tie that's pretty fresh and holding well, you know, post-operatively. That's going to hold for a while. But as that begins to resolve, you can begin to start normalizing their mechanics. And so you look at months out, they're still hurting. When he would prefer them not to be hurting at that point. Yeah. He wants them resolved. And so if I can help him resolve, then he really wants me to do that because it looks good in his outcomes, right? Right. That's that's for sure. Awesome. <clears throat> and what, you, what sounds crazy is if you want to do just OMT, you can begin to set up referral patterns like that. You can actually get people who want to improve their outcomes postoperatively, whether it be a general surgery or or even CT surgery or whatever, <clears throat> and they'll, uh, they'll refer to you, you know, along the lines so they have better outcomes that, that's a possibility that's awesome um so <laughs> you talked about how you're involved in research committees and you know bringing OMM up to date how do you keep up to date with developments in OMM is it reading those research articles and propositions and what else do you do well really what's funny is the body's not changed in a long time yeah you know, that's ultimately I think where most people are is you begin to develop competency with OMT. Mm-hmm. But there's always these cases that really you come across, you're like, man, I just don't know. I try everything I know, and it just didn't work. And so I think you learn. As, as you figure out this one rare case, you share it with your colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. What you did and what you saw. <clears throat> and I think that's how I learn the most is I get to back with the people that I, that I, that I trained with who are seeing people all the time and doing OMT is we share and we spend time. I think uh, sad to say most CME sessions are really ba- built for basic because mm-hmm. folks didn't pick up on OMT. So they're trying to learn mechanics and basics. When I want to go 
to another level. So I, I go to my mentors and my and the, my colleagues who really do a lot of OMT to kind of touch up a little bit, look at what they're doing, what they've learned in the meantime. I know it sounds crazy, but when I was a fourth year, my OMT probably was was probably as good when I was a fourth year um, as it was for a long time. I lost some of my residency because I didn't do as much. But when I was mm-hmm. a fourth year, a couple of my colleagues would get together at least once a month and treat each other and then show each other what we learned. That's awesome. People. And I think that's the best way to learn uh, is learn from your colleagues and your peers. And that's how we learn. You know, we do CME anyway, right? Yeah, I think OMT and OMM, NMM, FM is very anecdotal. So I think that's very helpful. Um, in addition, I've been to the SAAO conference um, as a fellow, and I found that that was higher level OMM, too high OMM probably for me at this point. But I, I think for those who are wanting to get a little bit more in the details, that's also a very good conference to look into. Without sure. a doubt. And that's what I'm referring to. A lot of people who I, who I trust who do OMT a lot are there. And so if I want to touch base with them, I'll go in and every every few years I'll go to, to uh, AAO convocation and, and mm-hmm. get to see a lot of people I've not seen in a long time. And we'll spend some time and Dr. Styles, I call him Ed now, he shows me all the things he's working on and he gets me up to speed real quick. So yeah, that's kind of how I uh, get back. Awesome. So um, kind of along the same lines, how do you recommend students continue their study and practice OMM after graduation while they're in resident, residency? Because you said you didn't do as much then. So how can they keep up with their skills? I think I think for everybody, you have to have some basic semblance of competency before you get out and start treating people. And what's, what's crazy, people don't even believe this, but once you develop that, once you establish that I know where to go, I know where to start, I know what I'm going to do for every patient. Now, it may go different directions once I get in there, but I know where I'm going to go. That's, the, that's all you need. That's all you need. And don't mm-hmm. you know what teaches you? Treating patients. I mean, yeah. that's, what treats, that's what teaches you. You learn to treat this patient, you're like, oh, I learned something here. I learned something here. And what you're doing is not going to hurt anybody. Even if you treat the wrong key dysfunction, guess what? When you're done, treat the other one. Yeah. Right? And then you guess what? You fix it. It takes you a little longer. Then as you treat more, guess what? You get faster. And then you get less likely to miss that key or miss that major pattern. Um, and it, it basically, the point for me was I learned that foundation. And I went third, fourth year and treated everybody who would let me treat Mm-hmm. By the time I was at fourth year, in my fourth year, um, I felt like my skills were pretty good. I didn't fear anybody. I would treat anybody, anywhere, anyhow, and I was continuing to learn. And that is the key. People want to be kind of sometimes want somebody to give them. How do I do this? How do I do this? You know what? Learn how to fish. That's the key. Yeah. It's the foundations and treat people. And before long, you'll be teaching people how to do all that too. Because it's not, it's, not, it's not magical. It's just basically what you, the people who before you, how they learn. How, right, how, that's how they, true. <laughs> they still learn. He just treated people and learned, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's that's very true. We have the foundation from our first and second year. So we have it. You just got to learn how to use it, to implement it and get confident. Obviously, don't hurt patients along the way, but have confidence in your basic skill set. You pra- you pass the practicals. Hopefully you know how to do it at this point. So I, I think, think that's, that's very important. I think that's the key for third and fourth years coming back into indirect techniques is you're really going to hurt nobody. That's uh, true. Soft indirect techniques and you start treating people. Also, you start getting better and better and better. That, that's the key. Yeah, that's true. Don't just jump into HBLA and try oh, some counter strain. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. <laughs> sure. um, so this is kind of on a totally different note, but um, you said you kind of graduated into OMM. You weren't totally in, buying into it at the beginning. Have you experienced any barriers as a DO who practice, uh, practices OMM, you know, it being some sort of 
mystical sort of treatment modality to people on the outside? And how have you overcome that? Yeah, I think there's going to always be just people who have an opinion about things. Um, when I was a student, there was a, there was one preceptor who I really looked up to who really didn't like anything manual medicine. I think it was, he had some preconceived bias about it. He, mm-hmm. he hated chiropractors. He always made fun of them. Um, and, and so I, he didn't say anything about to me, but I'm pretty sure that I felt that after I was gone, he had something negative to say about it. So it's always been barriers. I think with anything you do, whether you, even a specialty you pick, will have those kind of same barriers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to GI, somebody's going to make fun of GI doctors and how they're, you know, all they do is one scope. You know, you're, you're never going to escape that. So I think you have to understand and take some of that stuff with a grain of salt. That's true. You know, it, it don't matter. You know, and when you help people, you help people. And if you help people, guess what? They find more people for you to help. But they yeah. <laughs> it propagates. Yeah. And we don't want. Sometimes those are negative. They get hurt and they need help. And guess what they do? Come to you. (laughs) Awesome. No, I think that's important to not take it so negatively. Realize that, you know, it's their own perception of it. And you've seen the results. Your patients have seen the results. So ultimately, it's you and your patient, not you and the other colleague, I guess. You know, for me, I say this. I don't want to say it. For me to take out of context, but when I, you know, I'm a, I'm a young white male growing up in, in, in rural America. And for me, being a DO student was the first time I'd ever been kind of in a minority role. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So I was in a hospital and I'd be in the room and they would be making fun of me or my profession with me standing there listening. I start making fun of the DO students, making fun of DOs. So it's kind of a little hard for me to understand, um, you know, what the story was. And it kind of changed my insight and view about being in that role. But, but but it's kind of nice. Everybody kind of needs to be in that role to kind of understand other people, other groups, um, and understand that that's going to happen no matter what. No matter right. what. And the more you become a victim to it, the more it impacts what you do. So you really can't worry about those situations. It, you know, make fun of the way you talk, where you're from, right. what you're perfect. It don't matter. Uh, <laughs> there's somebody trying to bring you down. That's just the way it is. And so the more you worry about it, the less you're able to to, to – from, uh, I guess, move in a positive direction and help people. Hopefully that's what we all want to do. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's like, if people are willing to learn, like if, if I have an MD colleague or just another professional colleague who's willing to learn, I'm happy to teach them, but not take it so to heart if they don't totally understand it, because that's not their job to understand my credentials at the end of the day. Right. So, awesome. Well, thanks. That was really helpful. I, you know, it's interesting to hear other people's perspectives about, you know, what kind of their journey, you know, into family medicine. Um, my last kind of question about OMT kind of has to do with billing because that's something we don't really get taught in medical school to a great degree. So is that something you learned in residency or how did you become proficient to earn monetary value for this skill? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not taught enough. And so I know one thing we're doing right now when the COVID kind of pulled all of our students off rotations, we put together kind of a virtual course and we spent quite a bit of time on coding, documenting to code and how to code and bill for that um, because many of our fourth years will be doing that really mm-hmm. soon or, or be in a situation to do it. Um, and, and so my residency was, like I said, was now having a residency ACGME. And so they weren't really in it, uh, ready to teach me about billing and coding for OMM. And when you're an intern and you're kind of under Medicare, like the Medicare billing, um, they often don't let you do OMT because um, or bill for it. They won't bill for it because of a preceptor. If it's not a DO, they can't bill for it. I see. It's a little tricky. So it depends on where you train. And so I had some DO preceptors, but not all of them were. It was always kind of not always, it seemed like they were never around when I was wanting to do OMT, you know. But so it wasn't until I got out of my training that I became 
uh, more when I became a medical director. Then I had to learn, you know, how to how to how to, how to uh, document. And basically, it's not real hard. I mean, when you learn how to document and then how to code and build anyway, then it's just kind of a little bit of a nuance. And a lot of times, AOA is good about. And I have sessions at OMED and places like that where you can learn how to document. And I, I've taught. I've done many sessions actually through our state organization, Toma. Mm-hmm. And I've also done the Kentucky side at Coma and went through and taught them how to actually um, document and build because we all know if you can't document and build, you're not going to do it. I don't care how great you are at OFT. So you got to get paid for it or you're gonna, not going to do it. So that's the key. And it's a good good thing that you're asking about billing and, and coding because that is so crucial to people doing OMT in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I and you always have interest companies that try to reject not paying. So they try to find ways to not pay you for OMT and whatever else. And so you become a medical director, you learn real quick how to fight those battles. And so you get good uh, at teaching people how to how to document and how to how to build for them. So that's okay. kind of how my pathway is. Awesome. So you think just going to like the state conferences and, and like OMED and TOMA, COMA, things like that, and just doing an official class, uh, if your residency isn't set up to teach you how to bill, if you don't have like a DO medical director or someone who actively uses OMT to kind of um, yeah. set the stage. And a lot of times they'll allow you like elective rotations when you're a resident, when you're out. I mean, find somebody who does OMT and pays, bills for it, pay. That, that's one way to really learn. Uh, if you can do a rotation with somebody who does OMT like that, that's where you're really going to learn more yeah. than you ever learned from a lecture. That's uh, true. Um, but there's all kinds of ways you just have to want it, and that's the key. If you and, and, and people sometimes think, well, I'll just do OMT when I want to. In reality, I don't. I don't think people realize that when you hit practice, the world changes, and you have to have some kind of basic skill set, and then you're still going to learn a lot. But you have to have a foundation that when you're in a busy practice and you're seeing patients every day. And it won't take a lot if you don't know how to build to get there. If you're so far away from that, if you're, you've been so far away from treating people, that obstacle of doing OMT in your practice is almost like so far away. Yeah. So you gotta you got to have the fundamentals, and then you also got to know how to, to, to get ready to do the coding and billing to get paid. For sure. I've heard on some people's aspect, I don't know the correct term for this, but the person who actually submits the billing, like the person you hire to submit the billing also is very critical to getting, you know, reimbursed for that so i think i don't know if that if it's helpful to send them to these sort of you know well, training or whatnot i was just curious yes you're right it's very important as i was a member i hired many coders and builders and, and office managers and uh, practice managers and that funny as i taught almost all of them how to, how to code and bill how to actually check and, and know how to, how to teach other faculty how to actually um, document and decode uh, they're charged to get paid for OMT. So, awesome. Yeah, we, we that's kind of our job because we teach, you know, <laughs> you, you know, do one, uh, see one, do one, teach one. Well, the same thing comes from this. When you learn that, I hate to use this terminology, but coding and billing is basically a, almost like a game. They keep changing the rules, hoping that you stay in the old rules so they can pay you less. Mm-hmm. So you've got to stay up. And so how we're coding and billing for and documenting for OMM will probably change in the next five to 10 years because we'll have to adjust um, to kind of keep up with what they want as far as that reimbursement. So you got to stay on it. you got to yeah. stay up today. You may have to go take some courses, like you said, lectures. Even when you know, you still may have to watch um, and learn. For sure. Just like in anything in medicine, you know, it's subject to change. That's what we signed up for. So it doesn't, you know, billing isn't something that's, you know, not amenable to that. So thanks so much for sharing about that. I want to say this real quick. I I make a joke all the time. There's two types of doctors in the world. There's the healers and the dealers. 
There's those that just want to take care of patients and don't want to do anything business related. And there's those who are like really business savvy and we want to make money. And that's their, and that, it's a joke. But in reality, you see certain people gravitate to being those two types. Mm-hmm. Your best primary care doctors have to be somewhere in the middle. You have mm-hmm. to be great at taking care of patients. But you can't say, I don't want to know anything about the coding bill, EHR. And then when you do that, you create frustration in your life. Those have to be merged with just the world we live in. And so it changes the outlook. You have to be somebody who's willing to learn and put in time to that part. Because if you don't know it, you hurt your patients who you care for. Uh, regardless of what you think, you do. And so if you're a healer, you have to be a little bit of a dealer to do a good job <laughs> being a healer. Okay. So That's coaching awesome. is important, very important. Okay. Thank you for that. I've never heard that term, but I, you know, sometimes I feel kind of guilty going, you know, we obviously don't go in this for the financial aspects, but we do have to make a living. And I think it's important to learn that aspect. So we are, you know, um, have our hands tied behind our back when those situations arise. So we can at least talk intellectually about it and understand and help our patients. Ultimately. We have, you have to understand this. When you've got a physician, you can't make money. They can't survive. What happens to that practice? It dissolves. <laughs> and then you have one less doctor in the community. So right. who's hurt by that? Yeah, the patients ultimately. I mean, so, so you have to be, you can't be somebody who's resistant to it. You have to because in the, in the end, who benefits is the patients when you're actually good at surviving in this world. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Jans. I have one last question for you. Thank you for okay. sharing all this wisdom. I've learned a lot. and I know our listeners will learn so much about this. What final tips do you have for our students pursuing family medicine, especially in these sort of uncertain times? <laughs> you know, I, I really don't, I have, I have you know, I, I teach all of you and, and, and I teach them, they go on and go into everything. And I really don't push anybody in family medicine. I, I just don't. I love it when they choke, when they choose it and they choose it for the right reason. And I say the right reason is they want to do primary care. They want, to t- they want to fix people, and they want to develop a relationship long-term with people, and I think that's what family medicine is, um, and, and, and that's what I love about it. And so what I look for is I try to educate people about what it really is, and I say, if you understand it, if you really want to do – you want to develop relationships with people, you want to fix them, you want to, you want to be that, that their doctor, mm-hmm. that's, that's family medicine. That really is. And if that's what you want, I encourage you to do it. Now, then it comes back to what some of the things we talked about before was – where to train, you know, how to train, what institution, all that kind of thing. Uh, we have so many good training programs, and I think the key is geography determines where people train because they want to live close to this or that, or they want, you know, more than anything else. And that's always, I think that's going to be the future. People are going to train by the geography of the program um, for the most part. I mean, there's exceptions to the rule. <clears throat> but I would say, you know, if that's what you want, then medicine is your key. If, if, if you want to just be outpatient, take care, and you can still do. And what I love about family medicine is I could go and do ER. ER, there were two companies that wanted me to work in the ER only. And I just don't enjoy the ER. And I'm like, no. And I did some moonlighting when I was a resident and, and young, attending out of, out of training. I did some moonlighting. And, and there are people who love ER and they should do it. You know, But if I wanted to do it, I could do it. Right. Um, I've been offered jobs as a hospitalist, just working primarily. As a, and I've done some part-time work as a hospitalist as well. Right, our local hospital here, um, I was a hospitalist for a while at least part-time in what I did. And, and I love that aspect. Um, and I think good family trained physicians are, are, can be excellent teachers because they know a little bit. I think the thing is we're big picture kind of people. And I used to make a joke with students. I'd say, if you can't see the big picture, don't go into family medicine. Do, do specialty work because you're detail oriented and you'll be excellent at that. Mm-hmm. But in primary care, we got to back up and look at the whole thing and say, okay, 
where do we go? Can I handle this or do I, or somebody else can handle it? And who needs to? Mm-hmm. And ultimately the patient benefits, you know, if they need surgery, I, I don't do surgery. I need a surgeon, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not often I refer people for blood pressure management. I'm good at that. Or diabetes. I, I don't have a problem with that. But when it comes to managing, you know, renal failure or the details of it, I may, you know, get them to the nephrologist, right? So it's very important in primary care that you can see the big picture. If you really want those, like I got described before, if you love people, you want to develop relationships, and you want to really impact people's life in a positive way, then that's family medicine. And you're great at big picture. You're going to be an excellent family doc. Uh, awesome. That's my take. Okay. Awesome. Well, Dr. Yance, it's been awesome talking with you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and taking the time out of your busy schedule with everything going on. Um, and thank you to our listeners for learning more about family medicine and OMT. Um, we hope you you know, go into family medicine, but obviously there's a lot of different options like Dr. Yance said. Um, so thank you guys and have a great day. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The ACU of P Student Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org. Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACOFP's OMTeaching at www.acofpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.